Exodus chapter 11. I'm going to start at verse 1. Now the Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. Tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbours for articles of silver and gold. The Lord made the Egyptians favourably disposed towards the people, and Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says, about midnight I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at her handmill and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, Go, you and all the people who follow you. After that, I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. The Lord had said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you, so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let Israelites go out of his country. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbours, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be one-year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lamb. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roast it over a fire, with the heads, legs and internal organs. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate for the generations to come. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. For seven days you are to eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, remove the yeast from your houses, for whoever eats anything with yeast in it from the first day until the seventh day must be cut off from Israel. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly, and another one on the seventh day. Do no work at all on these days except to prepare food for everyone to eat, that it is all you may do. 
Celebrate the festival of unleavened bread because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. In the first month you were to eat bread made without yeast from the evening of the 14th day until the evening of the 21st day. For seven days no yeast is to be found in your house and if anyone whether foreigner or native-born, who eats anything with yeast in it must be cut off from the community of Israel. Eat nothing made with yeast. Wherever you live, you must eat unleavened bread. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your family and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin, and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the doorframe. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway, and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, What does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshipped. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeons, and the firstborn of all his livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. We all know, don't we, that that significant events in the history of a nation shape that nation as they go forward uh, in time. And as we think about our own history as, as a nation, perhaps we think about the Magna Carta and how significant that was uh, to our country, or perhaps the um, victory in the Second World War, and all that meant for our freedom, and not just our freedom, but the freedom of, of many across Europe. Or perhaps uh, we think of friends uh, across in the States, and they would point to their Declaration of Independence, somewhat of a sore point for us uh, folks over here, but very important uh, to those um, who Uh, are American, of whom I know many. But of course, for Israel as a nation, and for God's people as God's people, these events that we've read of this morning, this final plague and the Passover, are foundational for their identity. They're foundational because these events were the means by which God preserved them as a nation. If there had been no Passover. There would be no nation of Israel, would there? But also, um, they are so significant because not just because they speak of their rescue from Egypt, but also because of what these events, these true events, teach about God. One of the things that we've been noticing, haven't we, is we, we go through uh, the Exodus and this amazing book in God's Word, and particularly in these ten plagues, is all they reveal about the character of God. All they reveal about God's character. And what is so striking 
about these chapters, chapter 11 and 12 of the book of Exodus, is that they show us that in this Passover and the bringing out from Egypt, that God is doing so much more than just, although it is huge, bringing his people out of captivity from under Pharaoh to the promised land. He is also forming them as a nation. He is working in them, in their lives individually, because he's forming them as a people and he is teaching them who he is. And so we might say that the book of Exodus is revealing to us the very character of God. A book that was written three and a half thousand, or events that happened three and a half thousand years ago, penned for us by Moses, are so relevant to everyone today. And this is why, friends, you and I need to know this God. Every person here, as James is reminding us in the bite-sized truth spot, has been made by God in the image of God, and that is an amazing thing. And part of that image and the intent of God in making you is that you might know him. And so as we look together at these events, we are not just looking at true history. (laughs) We are looking and learning and reading God revealing himself to each one of us today. So let's look, and we're going to see two big things as we look at this uh, amazing event of the, we're going to look at the final plague, the 10th plague, and the Passover. And we have two big points this morning about what they reveal about God. We're going to see that the final plague reveals the judgment of God. And then secondly, the Passover reveals the salvation of God. And we'll work through those two together. So let's see, first of all, how this final plague reveals the judgment of God. And there, of course, we're going to particularly focus on chapter 11 and the first 10 verses. Because in this final plague, which brings the death of the firstborn sons in each of the Egyptian homes. Nonetheless, this final plague, we're told in verse 1 of chapter 11, will bring freedom to God's people. Because having happened, there will be no more refusing from Pharaoh. There will be no more bargaining with God. Their captivity will end. And gloriously, at the end of verse 1, we read, he will drive you out completely. So this is it, friends. They're going to be taken out. And God is so much in control of what's going on here that not only is he going to bring them out of Egypt, he is going to favorably disclose the Egyptians towards them. As they go, because if you notice there in verse 2 and 3, God is going to work in the Egyptians. They will give their treasures to the Israelites. Such is God's control over all that is going on. But in the midst of this final plague, and at the center of the judgment of God here, is that every firstborn son in Egypt will die. Every Egyptian firstborn son will die. The the significance of these firstborn sons is very important because if you remember back in chapter 4, and if you keep your hands in Exodus 11 and jump back to chapter 4, in verse 22 and 23 we read that God is speaking to Moses, telling him to return, as he returns to Egypt, he is to say, 
chapter 4, verse 22, then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me, but you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. Remember that there is a power struggle at play here between Pharaoh and the Lord God. The great question is, who is the Lord? And Pharaoh is claiming that he has power and authority over Israel, who are described as a nation, as God's son. And God says, I will demonstrate my power over your son. I will show that I am the Lord. And so we read those chilling words in verse 5 of the final plague that comes down upon Egypt and the whole range of Egyptian society is affected from Pharaoh in his palace to the slave, the female slave who was there milling in verse 5 to we read in chapter 12 and verse 29 the prisoners in the dungeon. The firstborn sons of Egypt die. And we read in chapter 11 and verse 6 of this wailing, a phrase that we have come to know many times already that has never been like anything else before. We heard that about many plagues, didn't we? But here it's spoken of the sorrow and the grief and the wailing that accompanies this plague. There is country wide grief and mourning. Pharaoh had caused Israel through his enslavement and oppression of them to cry out to the Lord and the Lord acted to rescue his people. But now the Egyptians cry out and they wail and they know no help. Think of the shock, the sorrow, the sadness This is by far the most serious and most terrifying of all the plagues. And which one of us doesn't find it hard to read about? But remember, friends, God is teaching us all in this plague. And I want us to think of a number of things that God is bringing out through this plague. And the first thing to draw your attention to is the seriousness of sin. As we think of the judgment of God, here we see the seriousness of sin. You know, as we read of this, a question that perhaps raises in our minds is, how is this fair? How is it fair that that some young children would have died through this plague? And as we hear that, let us remember Abraham's words in Genesis when he spoke to the Lord. And he said, God is the judge of all the earth. He does what is right. He does what is just. And this plague, in this plague, God is being just. We must not think this is an injustice. In this plague, God is bringing a just punishment for sin upon some, but not all. God acts, God's actions in bringing this death, this plague of death upon Egypt is not unjust because the Bible tells us that because of sin, we all deserve to die. In Romans 3, we read that the wages of sin is death. 
God's word also tells us that none of us is innocent. In Romans chapter 3, we read that there is none, there is none righteous, no, not one. And God's word is very clear that infants and children are not born neutral. That the sin of Adam is inherited by them because they descend from Adam. So in Psalm 51 and verse 5, we read these words. David speaking, a psalm of confession of his sin before God. Having spoken of his own transgressions and sin, verse 3, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. And then look, friends, at verse 5. Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. So God's word teaches that we are sinful in deed and action and sinful in nature because that is inherited from Adam because of what happened in the Garden of Eden. And here we come to something which is a very important element of the biblical teaching, which is that as James is sharing with us, teaching us in the bite-sized true spots, male and female are all made in the image of God. Every human being bears God's image, and that brings great, great dignity to each of us and great glory um, to humanity relative to the rest of creation. We have an amazing privilege, friends. But alongside the glory, which is absolutely true, there is also the sin of Adam. And so as we hold those things together, we recognize that whilst God's actions here for us are, for, are for hard for us to read about, they are just friends. Our struggle is that our internal moral compass is not always calibrated by God's word, but rather by our world. And we all, myself included, need to keep on hearing God's word that we might calibrate our moral compass according to the scriptures. So, so the wrong question that we might begin with is, is what have they done, these firstborn sons to deserve this? Rather, we might ask, why are the other children spared? Because, friends, sin is that serious, and we bear the guilt for what we do, true moral guilt before God for our actions, and also we bear the guilt... And we're accountable, God's word says, for what Adam did in the Garden of Eden. And so we see here in this plague the very seriousness of sin. That's the first thing that we have to reckon with. And, and that's so important because, because the way our world sees sin, although it doesn't use that word, but the way our world sees sin, bad things, is, is it sees things that are sinful as, as minor character flaws, as, as things that perhaps we should excuse that things that perhaps even God should just overlook. They're just a bit of fun, or they're just human, you hear people say. Now, there's truth in that, isn't there? Because it is characteristic of fallen humans to sin. 
But that means that we're all in the same situation as sinners before God. And so the first thing that we see here is the seriousness of sin. The judgment of God is coming down to show to us the seriousness of sin. But, but it's also showing to us the reality that judgment is certain. Next big thing that's being shown in this judgment of God, that judgment is certain because it comes upon all the Egyptians indiscriminately. On the rich and the poor, on the freest man of all of Egypt, which is Pharaoh, and the most imprisoned, or the most, sorry, the most, um, not free, in prison. In 1239, sorry, 1229, the most constrained, the most restricted. And this plague points to a day when God will come and judge all sin. That's what it's warning us of. That, that there is a day coming when what we see here in this 10th plague is a picture of that day. A famous philosopher once compared the reality of, of all mankind living here and now to a bit like people living at a masked ball. And you know, in, if you go to a masked ball, I understand that you, you go disguised in some way and you enjoy the occasion, you dance, you talk, you sing with other guests perhaps, and, but you don't quite know who you're talking to. There's a sense in which the identity of the individuals is hidden. There's a sense in which some things aren't known. That's a picture but then this philosopher said that at midnight in a mass ball, all the masks are removed. There's no more hiding and everything is revealed. People hide now. You and I hide now in different ways. We wear those kinds of masks all the time, don't we? Because there's things about our life that other people don't know. And we want to keep it that way. But on the last day everything in our lives will be exposed and judged. And nothing is more terrifying than the judgment of God that will be universal and certain. But then also we see, not only does this plague show us a seriousness of sin and the reality of judgment, but it also shows to us that God is glorified in his judgment. Because as we think about our world and we think about judging in our worlds, we perhaps think about the work of a court judge and we see that work as necessary but not good. We see it as something that needs to happen and should happen, but we don't necessarily see it as a good thing, perhaps. And that's true of all human judgments, but it's not true of God's because God's judgment is a good thing. God is glorified, we read, in his judgment. Now, all of the plagues, all ten are God's work. Some of the plagues happen, are, are, sorry, the plagues begin through the actions of Moses and Aaron, but not this one, because in verse 4 we read that God will go through Egypt. This judgment is a personal act of God. They're all acts of God, but God particularly brings this judgment in that sense. There is no mediator to begin it. And God describes this judgment, verse 9, as one of his wonders, one of his mighty acts, a miracle, the word has a sense of, by which he is made known. Because in this act, verse 12 of chapter 12, God brings judgment on the gods of Egypt... And they know fully and finally 
end of the verse, chapter 12, verse 12, that I am the Lord. You know, it's a reality that we live in days when people have a very tame view of God. They think of him as, as perhaps someone who is confined to a building, and you only meet him in a per- particular place, or, or he's there when you need him, or perhaps he's easy to manipulate. I mean, I wonder if some think of God as maybe a kind grandfather who is always handing out treats and never raises his voices at anything. But friends, there are times and there are moments, and this is one, when God moves in such a way as to show that he is the Lord. He speaks, he thunders, he acts to show us that he is not tame, he is not controllable, he is not manipulable or malleable. He is the Lord, and one day we will all stand before this God. And a day is coming when Jesus Christ will return where every eye will see him and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And so, friends, nothing is more important than being ready for that day. So, friends, as we see that God is glorified in this judgment, Christian, can I ask you this? Do you believe that God is glorified in judgment? Jonathan Edwards said, the glory of God is the ultimate end of all God's works. In Christ, our God is gentle and lowly towards those who have faith in him. But he is also the judge of all the earth. And if God will come one day and judge, we should be ready for that day. But also, as believers, we should live our lives now in the light of that day. And so, as we think perhaps of Romans chapter 12 and verse 19, when Paul is speaking of God's coming judgment, of how God is judge and how we are not God, the words he uses for us is to say that we are to leave room for God's wrath. As the Lord's people, we are to leave room for the wrath of God. And that is incredibly significant for how we live here and now. Children and young people, you do not need to right every wrong that you see or that goes on around you. God has rightly and in an appropriate way given you a sense of justice. It comes from the image of God, but it is not your responsibility to fix all of that all the time. Because if you try and sort everything that goes on around you, you will get that wrong at times. We will all get that wrong if we try and do that. We are to leave room for the wrath of God. We are to trust in a God who will one day right all wrongs. And that helps us when that right sense of injustice swells up in us to not think that we have to and we must try and sort all of that out. It's right, it's good, (laughs) that you respond to sin in the world with that sense of, this is wrong. That's a good thing, God has given it to you. But don't think that you are personally responsible to deal with all of it. 
But this also has implications for all of us as the Lord's people, that we are not called to right every wrong in our world. We should hate sin. And we should, as we are able, and in accordance with our responsibilities, seek to do justice towards our neighbor. But we do that recognizing we will never get it right all the time. We can't fix everything. And it's not within our power or calling to do all of that. Now, it's so important we see that because some will say that we are responsible for things that we have not done ourselves. Some might say that we have a moral duty to put them right. So the thing that's sometimes said is that if you are part of perhaps a majority privileged group, as they can be described, you are responsible for the sins of others who are also in that group. So so maybe because of your skin pigmentation, you are made responsible for people of the same skin pigmentation and what they have done. Or or because of your gender, you are made responsible for things of that people of the same gender as you have done. But to say that you must put that right and it is your responsibility, even your sin, is not a biblical view of sin and is not a biblical view of justice. The church is not commanded to resolve all injustices in our world. Individual Christians are called to act in keeping with biblical justice. And where do we see that? We see that in the parable of the Good Samaritan, don't we? Because how did that, the Good Samaritan respond? Well, he responded doing justice to the person who was before him, who needed help, and he had opportunity to help them, means to do so. I was thinking this week, just of William Wilberforce, and the amazing thing he did that God used him to, to bring about the end of the slave trade by, along with others, making, making representations in the case again and again in Parliament that that should come to an end. It was a situation over which he had the ability to do something. He had opportunity. It was before him. God used him for that. That was a great thing. But there are times, friends, when we can be made to feel responsible for dealing with everything that is wrong in our worlds. And I want to say that God's word is clear that you are not. You're not. Do not accept that yoke and burden. It is not yours to carry. Bringing full and perfect justice in all the world is God's job. And we are to fulfill our individual responsibility in life and in callings to show justice to those who are before us, our neighbor. But then we are to entrust that to him. So seeing God's justice, seeing that God is glorified in his justice, teaches us what is our responsibility and what isn't. So we've seen This final plague teaches a seriousness of sin, the reality of judgment, and that God is glorified through his justice and judgment. But now we come, secondly, to the salvation of God. The salvation of God, our second point. We've seen the judgment of God, now we come to the salvation of God. And here, as we step into chapter 12, we see that God's people are saved from judgment through substitutionary sacrifice. Because on the night of the 10th plague... When there are loud cries right over Egypt, 
Those cries are in every area of Egypt except one area, the land of Goshen, the home of the Israelites. And God rescues his people in the midst of this plague, and he does that through the Passover and the instructions and provision of this Passover lamb. Now, God did not need to use the Passover to rescue, did he? In all the other nine plagues, God has protected his people without any means of, of, of a, a sacrifice or of a provision, as we find here in the Passover. But God is doing that. God is, God is protecting them from the plague of death to the firstborn, and he is bringing them out of Egypt through this special meal to teach them and us about salvation. I don't know if you spotted it. As, as Leah was reading the scriptures, uh, in chapter 12 and verse 13, it just jumped out at me. If you look at the verse there, it says, the blood will be a sign for you on the houses. Isn't that remarkable? The the blood is a sign both for the Lord as he passes through and the judgment comes, but also for the Israelites. Why? Because this astonishing event, this Passover lamb and sacrifice is here to teach us about salvation. Now, we're not going to work through all the details uh, of the provisions together, but in chapter 12, you'll notice in those first 11 verses that they are to take a year-old male lamb. It is to be the right size for the family. It is to be without defect. The lamb is to be kept for four days. On the 14th day of the month, they are to kill it, and they are to paint the blood on the doorposts of their homes. On the very same night in which they kill the Passover lamb, they are to roast, having put the blood on the doorpost, they are to roast the lamb. They are to eat it together as the Lord's people. They are to not have any unleavened bread and nothing is to be left at the end of the day or the end of the night, verse 10. And they eat this, this meal quickly. They're stood up. You know, you're going to get, just well, think about, you get indigestion, don't you? But why are they doing this? Well, it's all to communicate this sense of being ready to go. This is it. God's taken them out. They're going. They're leaving. So that they would be spared, verse 13, from this destructive plague. Now, you can imagine the family conversations that would go on on this day, this evening. Firstborn son goes to dad and says, Dad, have you got the lamb? Yes, son, I've got the lamb. Son, father, have you, have, you, have you killed the lamb? Yes, I've killed the lamb. Well, is, is the blood on the doorpost, dad? Can you, can you check it's out there? Can, can you make sure there's enough? I mean, can you see it? Is it there? It's understandable, isn't it? <laughs> that that may have been going through the minds of some of those Egyptian boys, sorry, those Hebrew boys. Because it's vital they follow the instructions Because there is but one way of salvation by the means of God's provision. And so what does it teach, friends? Well, it teaches us that salvation is by mercy. We see salvation of God and see that salvation is by mercy. Because the Israelites were sinners too. As we've already talked about, they were sinners indeed and they were sinners by nature. And we know that from what we've seen as we've worked through the Exodus We can think back to chapter 5 and how the Israelites wrongly blamed Moses for how Pharaoh was now treating them. And there are many times they sinned in many different ways. Joshua 24, 
There, Joshua tells the Israelites, looking back to Egypt, he tells them to throw away the gods that your ancestors served in Egypt. So some of the Israelites were idolaters. That's what Joshua is telling us in Egypt. So they are not deserving of this rescue. But God is passing over them on that night as a demonstration of his mercy to show us that that no one deserves his salvation, that we are all sinners. And so what a glorious reminder this is, friends, that that if you are a Christian today, it is not that you deserve God's salvation. It is not that that you should think anything of yourself that God has saved you. Absolutely, you have the image of God, and that's a great and glorious thing. But the fact that God saved you wasn't for anything in you. It was for his grace and mercy that he might display his kindness in saving you. What hope that gives us in our struggles with sin. What confidence that gives us as we wrestle with doubts in the middle of the night. We hope in a God of mercy. We see the mercy of God, but also we see that, that salvation is by a perfect substitute. Because as God came to bring death upon Egypt and passed over the homes of the Israelites... They were spared because a perfect substitute, or the lamb which point the lamb was provided that had this sense of a substitutionary sacrifice without blemish. That's an interesting question to ask. For whom were the blood was the blood of these lambs shed? Number of levels to that, isn't it? On one level it was shed for the firstborn sons who were spared from death. On another level, it was shed for every Israelite home who were spared from the sorrow and mourning of death. And on another level, it was shed for, for all God's people because Israel were God's firstborn son. So there's many levels to this, but, but the big thing for us to see is this focus, and it's so clear in the passage that there is a substitutionary death that is needed that rescue might come about. Salvation comes at great cost, friends. It comes because of a substitutionary sacrifice. And the lamb dies so that the Israelites would be saved. And note the details. The lamb is to be a male in his prime. He is to be perfect. And we'll come back to those in a moment. But then we also see, not only is salvation by mercy, salvation by a perfect substitute, salvation is also by the shedding of blood. The lamb died. The blood was shed. It was painted on the doorposts. And the blood is so very key. Some of you may know of the uh, film, The Prince of Egypt, animated film. And I'm told that when the authors, when the scriptwriters wrote the first script, they had a number of religious advisors who helped them with the details. And in the first version of their script of the prince of Egypt, they had the, a mark placed on the doorposts to signify the Israelite homes. But all it said was a mark was placed on the doorposts. And the religious advisor says, you cannot just do that. It is not just a mark. You have to say it is the blood of the lamb. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Now, it is not in any way that the lambs were bearing the sins of the Israelites. We know that Hebrews 
chapter 10 and verse 4 tells us it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So it's not that the lamb is dealing with sin. But the lamb is pointing to the lamb who would come, who would do this great work, whom John the Baptist identified when he cried out, Behold the Lamb of God. Because, friends, right through all the elements of this Passover, Christ is being pictured so clearly and so wonderfully. This is one of the pinnacles of of the Old Testament where God displays in technicolor glory the coming Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and all that he would do. Because he has come to be for his people our substitutionary sacrifice. He has lived a perfect life that was tested and observed by many. He died as a man in his prime, 33 years or so of age. And he died a bloody death on the cross. All in our place as our substitute. He went there so that we don't need to. And that means that God, the God who rightly judges Because he has poured out his punishment and his judgment on Christ. If you're trusting in Jesus Christ by faith today, you can say, God is merciful to me. Full salvation is mine by faith because I am one of his people because of all that he has done for me. Sure, many of us know the Hillsborough disaster, the football game where there was massive loss of life, led to the introduction of seating throughout football stadiums. And following the disaster, in the ground of Anfield, the Liverpool ground, people put tributes on the walls. And in one corner of one of the walls, there were these words. To the fan who gave me the kiss of life, rest in peace. The story behind that note, it was written by a woman who was there present at the game. She was right at the front and she was being pressed against one of the fences as the crush began. And she went into cardiac arrest. A fan next to her saved her life and gave her CPR. And then arranged, along with others, to lift her body, over the fence, and she lived, but he died. Friends, Christ's substitutionary sacrifice was bigger than that. He gave himself for all of his people, bearing all of our sin and judgment, the salvation of all the Israelites from Egypt, the rescue from Egypt, took thousands of lambs, But the salvation of every one of God's people took but one perfect lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, next week, you'll have noticed in the passage, there's a lot about remembering that and and looking back to it and thinking of all that means. And, And next week, God willing, we're going to look at that together as we think about the Lord's Supper before we celebrate the Supper together. But friends, as we close now this morning, let us remember that we must respond and believe. And we close with this thought. We must respond and believe. Christ's substitutionary sacrifice means salvation for all those who believe. And the Israelites needed to 
act in faith upon God's provision for a rescuer. It seems to me from the passage that the instructions for preparing the Passover were given four days before this, fourth, this final tenth plague. Because they have to get the lamb on the tenth day, and on the fourteenth day the lamb is sacrificed. So the Israelites, if that's true, and I think it is, could have acted in other ways to try and avoid this plague, could they not? They could have said, right, we're off. Each family, let's gather up the family, let's try and make a run for it. Let's try and get out of Egypt so we're not here when this plague comes. But they didn't. They trusted God's provision. And they needed to only trust in what God had provided, not what they would provide. If they didn't find a lamb, as God had said, if they didn't paint the blood, as God had said, if they weren't within their homes under the blood, then they wouldn't be safe. They needed to be under the blood. And that's what we all must do. To trust Christ alone. To believe in him as our sacrifice. And then God's word says we are safe. Safe from judgment. Safe for eternity in heaven. And if God can preserve you and I from eternal judgment then he can keep our faith through anything in this life also. So make sure, friends, that you are under the blood of the Lamb today. Trust Christ by faith, and then you can be confident that God will rescue from judgment. That he will bring you out of captivity to sin and death and the devil. And that he will bring you into his glorious rest.